One. It's a little bit warmer than yesterday afternoon, huh? It's nice. Yeah, it's a beautiful day. A great time to go to the beach. <laughs> I hope you don't think about that too long, though, since you're here. Uh, not to be dreaming of that. Anyways, I can't believe that it's Thursday already. When did that happen? The weekend is almost upon us. Today we're going to be looking at, again, the nuts and bolts. We're going to be looking at how to give Bible studies. So we've talked about divine commission. Why are we doing this anyways? What's the importance of doing outreach and evangelism? And then we moved into, on Wednesday, friendship evangelism. How do you make friends for Jesus Christ? How do you work in your community again to minister the needs of your neighbors? And now we're going to just take it one more step. Now you've become friends, you've ministered to their needs, you've sympathized with them, you've won their confidence. Now is your opportunity to share the word. But how? What do you do? How do you share a Bible study that is interesting, that's dynamic, but also, of course, it must be Christ-centered? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you would please bow, or this afternoon, excuse me, if you would please bow your heads with me first for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for another day of life that you've given to us, Father. Another day to praise your name and to thank you for the mercies that you bestow on us each day. And Lord, now we come to you and we're wanting to learn, Father. May you refresh our minds. May you uh, help us to stay cool so we can stay focused. And I just pray, Father, may you teach us, may you put the burden of souls on our hearts. We thank you, Father, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago, I met a woman by the name of Betty. Betty was interested in doing Bible studies. We had talked about some community programs, some healthy living programs, built a relationship, and we transferred that and started doing Bible studies. And as I was going every week and having Bible studies with Betty, she was enthusiastic. She was excited about the Bible studies. She was enjoying getting to learn more about, about God and prophecy. When the prophecy seminar came about, I invited Betty to come, and she didn't have a car. So every night I would go by her house, and at that time I had my parents' old Suburban, big Suburban. So every night I would drive over to pick up Betty, and she had invited some of her neighbors, and then I had invited some of her neighbors as well, and so every night we would fill up that Suburban, and I would drive it over to the church every night for the prophecy seminar. I remember one night in particular... Betty was sitting on the back seat, and she was talking with one of the friends from her neighborhood. And she said, I think these are Seventh-day Adventists. Keep driving. <laughs> Later that, after, that evening after the seminar, I had a chance to talk with Betty, and I learned more about her testimony. You see, Betty was about a little over 80 years old at this point. She had lived a very, very rough life. Throughout her teenage years, she had been in and out of foster homes. She was in and out of the party scene, the party life. She was just living a wild, wild life. She told me about this one foster couple that made a huge difference in her life. No matter what she did, no matter how annoying she was, they never yelled at her. They always respected her. They were always caring. They brought her to church every week. And that family made a difference in her life. Granted, Betty ran away from that home, just like she had done in the past. But she never forgot the influence of that Seventh-day Adventist family. And now, over 60 years later... 
by God's grace, I knock on her door. And I meet this woman, and we start studying the prophecy she heard over 60 years prior. She comes through a full prophecy seminar, and she gives her life to Jesus Christ and is baptized. Praise God. You know, that couple, when Betty ran away, they probably thought, oh, all our efforts were in vain. We tried so hard with that girl, and she rejected it. But their prayers were remembered in the presence of God. God never gave up on Betty. And 60 years later, she finally made that decision. Can you imagine in heaven someday when Betty goes up to those former foster parents, their look of surprise seeing her there in heaven? How many of us have loved ones that we have prayed for for years and for years? And we're wondering, will they ever give their life to God? I praise God for the story of Betty that reminds us, yes, do not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Today, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at why to give Bible studies, how to give Bible studies. We want to start off, what is the biblical rationale for giving Bible studies? Why is it so important? Again, I could just hire an evangelist and have him preach a huge prophecy seminar and see dozens of people baptized. So shouldn't they do all the work? Why do I, as an individual, why do I, as a church member, need to be involved in evangelism? Why should I be giving Bible studies? Build relationships, it grows us. We can reach people the evangelists may not be able to. Absolutely. Sorry? Absolutely, it completely strengthens us. Let's imagine for a moment an excellent, incredible evangelist. And he's holding evangelistic seminars all the time. How many people do you think he could win for Christ in a year? How many people would be baptized in a year? A phenomenal evangelist. Give me a high number here. Okay, we have an excellent evangelist here. A hundred thousand. So maybe he went to India or one of these countries that are more open. A hundred thousand. All right, she aims high. Would we keep that type of evangelist in this conference? That's a great evangelist. A hundred thousand. So let's say that he wins a hundred thousand and here I am, the lowly church member. What difference can I make compared to that evangelist? It seems like it's so insignificant. In fact, we have a chart here. It's a little bit hard to see in this lighting, but I'm going to outline it. Let's say that a gifted evangelist wins a thousand people per day. Would you say that would be a gifted evangelist? So 365,000 people per year. That's huge. And here I am, the lowly church member, and my goal is to win one person for Christ every year. One person for Christ every year. And not only do I win one, but I teach that one to win one. Right? So by God's grace, we reach one person, we give Bible studies, we see them be baptized, and we teach them how to reach others. Every year reaching one. So in the first year, there's just two of us. Myself and the first person I've won. Year number two, how many of us would there be? Four. We're doubling our efforts. But compared to the evangelist that has won 730,000 people, do my efforts seem a little insignificant? Just a wee little bit. You might get discouraged if your report was compared with the evangelist. Consider eight years later, they have won almost three million people, and, and you're doing pretty good. You have a church of 256. That's a great size. 
but still rather small compared to the evangelist until we're going to be looking 23 years later. 23 years later, we see that the evangelist has 8 million. And how many have you won for Christ as a lowly church member? Over 8 million souls. In 23 years, if all you do is, by God's grace, you reach one person per year and teach that person to reach someone else, in 23 years, over 8 million people could make a decision for Jesus Christ. Does that blow your mind? That's huge. That's incredible. If we continue down the years, 24 years, over 16 million, and after 26 years, you have won nearly seven times this incredibly gifted evangelist. Seven times, 20 or 67 million people won to the gospel message. Do your efforts amount to something? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, our passion, our goal, our motto is to reach one every year for Christ and teach that one to reach one. But what if for the rest of your life you do nothing but give Bible studies? You do nothing but do healthy cooking programs and ministries and you're, you're reaching out to your community. The rest of your life, that's all you do. And only one person makes that saving decision for Jesus Christ. Were your efforts worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. We look at one soul and we say, really? All that time, all those hours, all that rejection, one soul? But one soul in the light of eternity, Jesus would have died for that one soul. One soul for eternity. How incredible it would be to reach just one. Christ's Object Lessons, page 146. It is not the capabilities you now possess or ever will that will give you success. It is that which the Lord can do for you. We need to have far less confidence in what man can do and far more confidence in what God can do for every believing soul. He longs to have you reach after him by faith. He longs to have you expect great things from him. Amen? God wants us to expect great things from him. He wants us to pray big prayers. What does it show God when we're praying big prayers? It shows our faith. It shows trust? Absolutely. When your child comes to you and let's say that they want to jump off some really, really big rock And they're saying, Mommy, catch me. And they they jump without even thinking about it, right? Because they know you're going to catch them, and you're hoping that you do. They have great trust in you. They're asking big because they know you can give it. And it's the same with God. When we ask big, God is saying, Wow, my child trusts me. They have faith in me. Ask big things of God. Ask to see his Holy Spirit work in your neighborhood. Pray for Bible studies. Pray for divine appointments. God wants us to ask big things. And he is the one that will do the work through us. So starting Bible studies with friends. How should I invite a friend to start Bible studies with me? First, pray. Prayer is always the first step. It is a safe step. Pray and ask God to reveal people in your life that you can reach for the kingdom. 
as we mentioned a few days ago, when we're doing evangelism, we're not trying to convert people. We're looking for people that God is already converting. People whose hearts are already open to the gospel message. So our prayer should be, God, I'm seeing a lot of thorns out here. I'm seeing a lot of green fruit, but you know the heart. Help me to see people as you do. You know who's struggling. You know who's crying out to heaven. Secondarily, don't limit God. Have you ever said, well, that person will never become a Christian. That friend, that family member, they're beyond hope. In fact, how often would we have been like the disciples? We get off on the, from the boat and, and we're walking towards town and we see this demoniac with cuts all over him. He is filthy, matted hair, chains still dangling from his wrists, running at you like a rabid man. And we would look at that man and we would say, there's no hope. How close is my boat? I'm running for it. But you see, Jesus looked at that demoniac and he saw a man who, transformed by God's grace, would be an incredible soul winner for him. Jesus can look at a demoniac and see a future missionary. Is that how we see people? Do we see them as God does? Lastly, identify the people Jesus may be calling you to reach and write them down. Why should we write their names down? Why is it so important to write it down? We remember? Absolutely. Isn't there more accountability as well? Once it's written down on paper, now you're stuck to that contract. We're going to fulfill it. We're going to pray for it. There are two times in particular where people are more open, they're more receptive to the gospel. There are two different types of crises that people face. The crisis of losing and the crisis of gaining. Crisis of losing, crisis of gaining. What would be an example of losing? What is something you might lose that would cause a crisis? You lose a loved one, your health. Sorry? Lose, yes, absolutely, losing a loved one, a family member, a spouse. What else? A home. You lose your job. All of these things are going to cause a, a huge crisis in our life. You come to a breaking point, you're looking for something better in your life, and that is when their heart is the, is the softest, the most tender to receiving the gospel. We can think about that in our own lives. How many times when we're down in the pits, that's the time we really are crying out to God. So when you see someone going through a crisis, you know that's a great time to reach them and to minister to that need. But what about the crisis of gaining? People don't typically think of gaining as a crisis, do they? But have you ever met someone before, and they say, you know, as soon as I do this, then my life will be perfect. As soon as I get married, oh, life will be bliss. <laughs> as soon as I get that dream job, oh, I'll never have any more worries. As soon as I retire, I'm going to work hard, work crazy hours, but as soon as I retire, I'm going to spend all my days at the beach, I'm going to be out golfing, life will be perfect. 
But what happens when they reach that point, whatever that point was? Huge disappointment, the great disappointment. Life is not as easy and perfect as they planned. That's the crisis of gaining. I have gained what I thought would bring me fulfillment, what would bring me purpose, and I still feel empty. Another beautiful opportunity to reach them and to share the only thing that will truly bring fulfillment. All right, how to invite friends to study the Bible. We all have friends in the community, family members maybe, that that don't know the gospel in its fullness. How do we invite them to study the Bible with us? Here are a few suggestions. Again, be prayerful and look for opportunities. Are they going through a crisis? Are there ways you can minister their needs? Speak with enthusiasm. Smile. So um, I was thinking maybe you would um, like um, to do like a Bible study or something. How excited would they be about that Bible study? Not so much, right? <laughs> that doesn't sound like such a great bargain. Are you excited about it? Have you enjoyed these Bible studies? Have they been a blessing in your life? If not, don't share it. Go back to your house. (laughs) Study it out. Maybe find a different Bible study series. Something that you're passionate about that truly has made a difference in your life because only if it's made a difference in our life can it make an impact in someone else's. So are you passionate? Are you excited about it? Smile. Be clear about what you're asking and also describe the benefits they will receive. So what benefits could they receive from doing Bible studies? Some feedback here. What kind of benefits could someone receive from doing Bible studies? We're not talking about prosperity preaching, you know. You'll have your wallet filled with cash. I don't mean that type of benefits. Better understanding of God's word. A purpose in their life. Absolutely. People are looking for that. They are searching for a purpose. True character of God. Peace. The world is a crazy place to be right now. These Bible studies have brought so much peace into my life, and I know that you're going to enjoy them as well. What else? Get to know Jesus in a deeper way. Does it give you hope for the future, peace regarding the future? Absolutely. Share these benefits with them. How has it impacted your life? How do you know that they will enjoy it as well? Show that you are sensitive to the unique situation. So if I go up to a, a young single mom and I say, I have these Bible studies you are so going to enjoy. They're going to be such a blessing in your family. It'll only take about seven hours every week. Do you think she's going to sign up? No, there's no time. She doesn't have seven hours. But if I tell her, you know, it's only going to take about 45 minutes a week, just 45 minutes. Okay. Just a couple, couple less posts on Facebook, right? <laughs> a few less phone calls. I can do that. 45 minutes is bite-sized. Just be sensitive to their situation. Assume they will say yes. If we expect rejection, what are we going to get? Rejection. Assume they're going to say yes. Are they your friends? Do friends want to do favors for you? Absolutely. Friends want to help friends out. Assume they'll say yes, and lastly, relax. They're your friend. You will not encounter persecution and dungeons, right? (laughs) 
just share what has made an impact in your life, and by God's grace, we'll make an impact in theirs as well. Does that make sense? Any questions on this part so far? Okay. Oh, yes. You can give a testimony about your own life. Absolutely. Yes. We talked yesterday very briefly about sharing your personal testimony or a miracle maybe God has worked in your life, a prayer he's answered. And yes, you could certainly share that as well, uh, maybe to help increase their desire to take the studies. Okay, here are two different examples I want to share with you on what, again, you could say to a friend to encourage them to take a Bible study with you. Now, I don't know your friend. (laughs) Every person is different. These are just some sample ideas, and then just formulate it to meet the needs of your friend. Let me first mention, when we were in Houston doing an AFCO to go this past January, we met a woman whose whole family was Buddhist. And she was asking us to pray for her family. That next day, she learned these principles. She learned how to invite her friends to study the Bible with her. And so she went home that night, and she went to her husband, and she practiced this canvas on him. And she said, would you like to do Bible studies with me? And he said, yeah, I'd be interested in that. And so she came back to us, and she was thrilled, but she said, What's our presentation on tonight? Is it on how to give Bible studies? I don't know that next step. (laughs) But it was beautiful to see that she's now giving Bible studies to her Buddhist husband. So praise God. You never know how he can use these principles. You might be able to say something like this. You and I recently talked about our need to know God better. What would you say to the idea of us getting together once a week to study the Bible? Very low-key. Very easygoing. What kind of conversation have you had with your friend lately? Have you had a spiritual conversation? Have you talked about all the planes that are crashing these days? Have you talked about the chaos going on in Israel and the Middle East and possible terrorist attacks in the States and how this world is out of control? Mention it. You know, we were recently talking about da-da-da-da-da, whatever it was. And I found these Bible studies and they give the answer to those questions. What do you say about us getting together next Thursday evening and checking it out for a few moments together? Here's another idea. I took this class on how to give Bible studies, (laughs) and they gave us this set of Bible lessons. The first study answers the question, can we trust the Bible? I'm supposed to practice the study with someone. I thought you might be willing to help me out. It would only take about 30 minutes. Would you do me a favor and let me practice my study on you? Okay, I'm learning how to get Bible studies. I've been learning more information. Could, could you do me a favor? Could I practice it on you? Do friends want to help you out? Yes. What do you think? Is this doable? All right. Something worth praying about and asking for. Every time we go to an AFCO to go, We ask people to make a commitment in their heart to pray for a Bible study. Pray for a Bible study. And after every AFCO to go, we're getting emails, we're getting phone calls with testimonies. I'm now doing Bible studies with my neighbor. I'm now doing Bible studies with my sister. I'm now doing Bible studies with my friend. Because God loves to answer prayers like that. If we pray in faith, God will open those doors. 
Okay, now we're going to get very practical here. You found the friend that wants to have Bible studies. What do you say? What's the next step? How do you share? We're going to look now at the ABCs of Bible study. What is our foundation? A, always present Jesus first. Amen? Always present Jesus first. Jesus must be the core. He must be the center of everything we present. Evangelism, page 264. The very first and the most important thing is to melt and subdue the soul by presenting our Lord Jesus Christ as the sin-bearer, the sin-pardoning Savior, making the gospel as clear as possible. Desire of Ages, page 826. The wonderful love of Christ will melt and subdue hearts when the mere reiteration of doctrines would accomplish how much? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But the cross of Christ, the gift of salvation, that's what's going to melt hearts. Now, do we share that in light of doctrine? Absolutely. Revelation chapter 1 gives us that foundation. When people think of Revelation, what words come to mind? Beasts? Yes, absolutely. What else? Uh, Second coming, fear? Yes, absolutely. Prophecy, Armageddon, Mark of the Beast, New Jerusalem. You're thinking on the positive side. That's good, but (laughs) most people are scared. Oh, that's that scary book we avoid. But Revelation chapter 1 tells us that it is a revelation of whom? Of Jesus Christ. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. By us knowing these prophecies, we have a greater understanding of Jesus Christ. We have a greater understanding of what he is doing right now in the heavenly sanctuary. Right? But the foundation must be Jesus Christ. I heard the story told of an evangelist who was preaching prophecy every night. And and one night, a church member went up to him and he said, So when are we going to hear about Jesus? And the evangelist replied, Oh, don't worry. I have a whole night on Jesus. Should we have just one night, one study dedicated to Jesus? No. Every single message must be presented in light of the cross. Every single doctrine has Jesus as the center. Okay, continuing here. Proverbs, oh, oh, sorry, point number B. So first, always present Jesus first. B, reveal truth gradually. This is found in Proverbs 4, verse 18. It says that the path of the just is as a shining light, that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. path of justice is a shineth light. It shines more and more unto the perfect day. In other words, do we get all the light at the very beginning of our Christian experience? No. We're still growing and we're still walking. I don't know about you, but it seems like every day I'm coming to God and I'm surrendering one more thing. I thought I'd surrendered all and then God shows me, oh, what about this? Oh, didn't realize about that, Lord. We're constantly growing and learning. And it's the same when we share truth with others. If we share too much at one time, not only will they not be able to grasp it, to remember it, but they're not ready to receive it. When I was in Honduras, I was working there briefly as a missionary. 
I had a beautiful experience. I loved being there. But the conditions I was in was a bit primitive. For example, uh, there was no electricity at the mission place I was staying at. We would walk into town on dirt roads and, and hope that too many cows and dogs and such hadn't walked before us which is particularly interesting when it was pouring rain and then you're walking to church and there's feces on the road, right? So that was our experience. We typically had running water, but that was never a guarantee. Uh, Washing clothes by hand, no refrigeration. Okay, so we're talking about very primitive conditions. In fact, what we had to do at one point uh, is we had to put these cheesecloths over the shower faucet Can you guess why? There were little creepy crawlers coming through that water, and you don't want them in your hair. Okay? So that was the place that I was staying as a missionary. Now, we did not want to get sick. We had a lot of illnesses we're trying to keep away from us. In case you're worried, it was a beautiful experience. I would love to go back there. Great people, but not the most sanitary. And so what we did is we had a couple different pans to wash dishes in. And in one of those pans, we put chlorine. Just a little bit of chlorine and a big bucket of water. That way, when you're washing your silverware, they're getting dipped in chlorine. So all those creepy little crawlers don't end up in my stomach. Right? Okay, so we were doing the chlorine, and then one day I was washing the dishes, and suddenly my arms began to burn. Can you guess what had happened? Too much chlorine. Someone accidentally dumped chlorine into that bucket, and my arms were beginning to burn. And to this day, I have one little white spot here on my arm, and it reminds me of that chlorine burn. Now, the chlorine wasn't important. Yes. I don't want all those parasites. I don't want those bugs. The chlorine was important. But too much of a good thing will burn you. Too much of a good thing will hurt you. We need to have it in small portions. And it's the same when we are sharing the truth with others when we're sharing Bible studies. There's a reason the Bible studies are outlined as they are. There's a reason our first Bible study is not Mark of the Beast. They may not be ready to receive that. We want to take small steps with them, reveal truth gradually. Does that make sense? Okay. Don't burn them with chlorine, okay? (laughs) Reveal that truth gradually as they can receive it. And lastly, the last letter here, C, make regular appeals. What did A stand for? Always present Jesus first. B stands for? Reveal truth gradually. And C stands for? Make regular appeals. Okay, good. Volume 6 of the Testimonies, page 64. At the close of every Bible meeting, decisions should be called for. Alonzo Werner once said, work according to the Spirit's leading, never without the assurance of his guidance. At the end of every single meeting, (coughs) decisions must be called for. You see, there's many reasons for this, but what we often do is we're afraid to ask that big question. We're afraid to ask for a decision, and so we put that off until the end of the Bible study series, until the end of the prophecy seminar. But what happens is that person now has to take a gigantic leap 
at one time. When you ask for that decision for baptism, they're thinking, oh, I need to make a decision for Christ, for the Ten Commandments, for the Sabbath, for the Second Coming, the State of the Dead. All of those decisions they feel like they have to make at one point. That's a big leap. It is so much easier if we make a decision every single night. They're just taking little steps. Yeah, I can see that in the Bible. Sure, I'll make that decision. One more step. Yes, I want to honor Jesus and keep his Sabbath day holy. That's just one more step. Make decisions, call for decisions regularly. There's another reason for this. We don't know if that is the last Bible study, if that is the last sermon they will ever hear. We don't know. You ever heard of the evangelist D.L. Moody? D.L. Moody, he was a rather famous evangelist. He would have tent meetings. He was centered primarily in Chicago. And in these tent meetings, thousands of people would come, and he would share deep messages from the Word of God. One week in particular, he was in Chicago holding a tent meeting, and the sermon title was What to Do with Jesus. And he preached his heart out about who Jesus is and what to do with Jesus in their life. But that night, he did something very different than he had ever done before, a decision he later regretted with his whole heart. He said, tonight, instead of calling for a decision, I want you to go home and I want you to think, what do you want to do with Jesus? Go home and think about it. And next week, when we come back together, then you can make that decision for Jesus Christ. But you see, next week never came. That very night, the great Chicago fire swept through that city. The homes and the lives of many people there in his congregation were destroyed. They never had a second opportunity to decide what to do with Jesus. D.L. Moody regretted that decision for the rest of his life. He said, I will never again preach a sermon without calling for a decision, without making an appeal for that very night. We never know. We can't take it for granted. The Bible study you give may be the last they ever hear. Encourage them to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Now you might notice that I keep saying, make a decision for Jesus Christ. Make a decision for Jesus Christ. Does that mean we're making the same decision every single night? No. But every decision is rooted in Jesus Christ. If they're making a decision to keep the seventh-day Sabbath, it is rooted in because of your love for God and your desire to keep his special seventh-day Sabbath holy. Would you like to join me in the decision to keep, I'm sorry, because of your love for Christ, would you like to join me in the decision to keep his seventh-day Sabbath holy? Okay, because of your love for Jesus, would you like to join me in praying, Lord, prepare us so that we are ready for your soon coming? Everything is centered in Jesus Christ. Every decision is rooted in a relationship. There's a couple reasons for doing that. First off, Jesus is the foundation. He's the core. But beyond that, if someone loves Jesus Christ, if they already have that deep relationship with him, will it be easy for them to make a decision for Jesus? Yes. 
If you know that something pleases your spouse, it's easier for you to do that. Most of the time anyways, right? (laughs) It's easier for you to do that because you want to do the things that pleases the one you love. And it's the same when we're calling them to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Evangelism, page 333. There is no greater bliss on this side of heaven than in winning souls for Jesus Christ. Do you want to experience the greatest happiness you can in this world? Do you want to have that true bliss? There is no greater bliss, we are told, than in winning souls for Jesus Christ. Now, moving back to the nuts and bolts of giving Bible studies, how do you do it? What does it look like? How many hours are you there? What type of questions might you encounter? How do you answer those questions? We're going to look at a few of these basics here in the next little portion of time we have together. Now, regarding what Bible studies you use, I would encourage you to use the ones you're most comfortable with. If you already have a set that you really enjoy, they've really reached your heart, use them because then you're going to be more passionate about it. Personally, I would really recommend uh, two different series. One is called Prophecies of Hope by Gary Gibbs. Prophecies of Hope by Gary Gibbs. Uh, You can find that at the ABC. I don't know if they have it here in the bookmobile, but regular ABC does have it. Prophecies of Hope. The other one is called Storicals of Prophecy, and that one is by Amazing Facts. Historicals of Prophecy by Amazing Facts. I use these Bible studies depending on which person I am studying with. The Prophecies of Hope is very deep. So if you're studying with someone that really wants to know prophecy, they have a good foundation in Christianity, I would encourage Prophecies of Hope. It makes sense. It goes through the Bible sequentially. If you're studying with someone who, again, maybe is a little more basic in their understanding, they know some about Christianity, haven't studied much of the prophecies, I would encourage going with the historicals of prophecy. It has a lot of stories. It keeps it interesting and engaging. I think, was there a hand over here as well? Gary Gibbs, G-I-B-B-S, Gary Gibbs. The other book I want to recommend to you It is called Winsome Witnessing. Have you heard of it before? Winsome Witnessing. That is by Gary Gibbs as well. Now, again, we've only had a few afternoons together, and there's so much more to cover on on giving Bible studies and friendship evangelism. And what do you do when you're giving a Bible study and the TV is blaring? How do you get them to turn it down without insulting them? Have you ever tried to sit, you know, you go and visit a friend and their TV is on and you're trying to have a conversation, but the whole time your eyes are drifting to the TV? Is that just me? And I'm fighting to keep my eyes over here, but the TV snatches us, doesn't it? That's why I don't have a TV. (laughs) I won't have a TV. Um, How do you not insult them, but get a, you know, get that environment where it's going to be a peaceful place to have your Bible study. Little tips, little cues like that, that's what you're going to find in the Winsome Witnessing book. Unfortunately, our time here is limited, so I'd encourage you to check it out. I know the ABC was going to bring some with them. So Winsome Witnessing by Gary Gibbs. Okay, time outline for a Bible study. Here's what we typically suggest for a Bible study. If you go to their home, the first eight to ten minutes, I'm going to spend just talking with them. 
getting to know how their week was going, maybe listening to some of their needs and, and prayer requests, just befriending them. I don't want to come in there and look as though I have an agenda. I don't care about you. I want to get our Bible study done. We don't want to come across that way. So the first portion I want to spend just getting to know them more, coming close to them. And as you do so, you learn more things. You learn what questions or issues they might have in the future. Uh, For instance, a friend of mine is currently giving Bible studies to a woman whose fiancé passed away. And she is now feeling and seeing him in her home. So my friend, because of just, you know, talking with her, getting to know her, she's learning more about it. And she's realizing, when I'm covering the state of the dead, please pray for me. She's realizing what's going to be an issue in the future. So it's important to get to know someone as well. The next 30 to 45 minutes is study time. We don't want to go beyond 30 or 45 minutes. Why? Their mind is shut. Typically, we do that with a sermon, right? After 30, 45 minutes, I'm gone. My brain is, has zoned out. Please have mercy on me. This is going to be longer than 30, 45 minutes, right? But typically, that's when we shut down. And so we don't want to wear out the saints. The last three to five minutes, uh, we're calling for an appeal. We're making an appeal and asking them to make a decision for Christ. It's very important, when possible, to have a second person go with you. That was Christ's method. He sent out his apostles two by two. (laughs) It's so important to have that support system, so I'd really encourage you in that. And the other aspect, don't stay longer than an hour. Don't stay longer than an hour. I remember I was following up on some media leads from Amazing Facts. A woman had been doing Bible studies, and I went to her house to offer additional Bible studies to this individual. And as I was talking with Judy, she said, oh, I had someone come to my house one time and give me Bible studies. I said, really? Yeah. They stayed for three hours. I never let them come back again. Oh. You see, what had happened is when they came over, Judy has a beautiful garden, and she had some animals, and she was showing them all these beautiful things. But then at the end of the day, when she sees three hours has passed, She doesn't think about all the time she used up. She just thinks about, they took three hours of my time, and it's over. I had to assure her, I had to promise her, I will be in and out in under an hour. (laughs) She said, really? Yes, I promise. Okay. And then she allowed, and we were able to do Bible studies together. But in and out under an hour is so important. Except, now I'm going to give the exception to the rule. I was recently in Greece, and we were working primarily with the Filipino immigrants and also the African immigrants to that region. And in that culture, it is so important to spend time with people. They would spend a couple hours just eating together, socializing together, and then another hour and a half having the Bible study together, just that fellowship time. And I remember, I'm trying not to look at my watch, right? Because <laughs> I'm thinking, American time, got to be in and out under an hour. But there, that would have been an insult. Because in that culture, when you spend time together, it means that you care about me. So do consider the culture, Hispanic culture again, might be more time together. um, But typically speaking, keep it under an hour, keep it brief. Social time. We mentioned the first eight to ten minutes of social time. What do you talk about? 
<laughs> Fort, that's right. Family, occupation, religion, testimony. Did anyone have an opportunity to practice fort? Did you give it a shot? <laughs> Not recently. All right, you still have a couple days left of camp meeting. <laughs> Family, occupation, religion, testimony. An opportunity to build a friendship, get to know someone. Uh, recognize things of interest. Again, we're looking at the pictures on the wall. We're talking about the wind chimes hanging in the front yard. Whatever it could be that we build a relationship with. Uh, use good body language. I'm going to focus in on just a few of these things. Good body language. I'm going to give an example of that for a moment. Let's say that I am giving a Bible study. Oh, they're all connected. Let's say that I am giving a Bible study. And I am just hanging out. What does this show about my level of interest? Am I interested in the Bible study? No. What do I look like? I'm bored. I can't wait for this hour to be up. I can't wait to get out of here. Instead, what we need to focus on is we want to show by our body language what you're saying, your comments, they're important to me. I'm excited about this study. So I purposely will lean forward when I'm going to make a point. I'm showing I'm engaged, I'm connected, I'm listening to you. Okay, so just make sure your body language is again revealing what you're feeling. Next is the study portion. First off, I ask them, did you have a chance to, to study your lesson? I'm not saying, did you study your lesson? I am not their school teacher. I'm just helping and encouraging them when they're walking with Christ. So did you have a chance to check out that Bible study lesson? No, no, life's been busy. Oh, no problem, no problem. Okay. First, we have a little opening prayer. Keep it short. A little introduction to the Bible study. You present the Bible study, and you want to connect with them personally. So when I share a Bible study, I want to give a little story at the beginning to catch their attention. Let's say that we're talking about the great controversy. You could share a story of, of a child that passed away unexpectedly, of a child dying from cancer, or you could say things like, many people wonder, if God is a God of love, then why is there so much suffering and pain in this world? Why is there? If God really cares about his people, then why are bad things happening to them? Why isn't he protecting the little children that are dying? How could a God of love be responsible for these things? Today we're going to find that the Bible has an answer to this question, a surprising answer, an answer that will finally give us peace. Have a short prayer, dive into the Bible study. Does that make sense? I'm wanting to catch their attention, get them excited about what we're going to study. If we're studying on the state of the dead, what happens after death? I may share a little commercial again. Many people wonder, what happens after you die? Heaven? Hell? Nothingness? Do you float around? Are you in heaven like a baby with a harp? What happens after death? Will we see our loved ones again? Today we will find that the Bible gives a clear answer, an answer that will bring us peace. And then we dive right into our Bible study. Okay, so just a little commercial that just is going to catch their attention. And then we move right into our study. They are. Yeah, they're huge questions. Absolutely. People are very unsettled. 
Right, right. And when I say those things, when I make those statements, suddenly that jogs their memory. Yeah, I have wondered that before. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. And it creates that interest. We call it salting the oats. Have you heard that saying before? (laughs) Salting the oats. We all know that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I have a a Clydesdale Belgium mix, big draft horse. (laughs) I can lead that horse to water all day long, but boy, I cannot make that girl drink. (laughs) Unless I salt her oats. What happens when you salt a horse's oats? She is thirsty, and she's going to run for that water. (laughs) I don't have to force her anymore. Now she wants it. And that's what we want to do in our Bible studies as well. We want to salt their oats. We want to get them interested in what we're going to present. Help them to see how this is relevant. This is exciting. This answer is their greatest life questions. Salt their oats. Okay, our appeal and our decision, we're asking how this, well, we want to know how will this study affect their life. So let's say that I am studying the 2300 days. I'm going to pick one that's a little harder here. So you're going to have to help me out. Say that I am studying the 2300 days. Why is that study important? How does that study impact their life today? Yes, I'm asking you. Why is that important? Why should I study that with someone? Absolutely. Good. So if those parts of prophecy were already fulfilled, we know that the rest will be as well. Certainly. What else? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Answers the secret rapture question. What else does it show us? Why is it important? Coming to the end of time. Good. What is Jesus doing right now? Is he just sitting up in heaven on his lazy boy? Just waiting for the time to pass? No, not at all. What is Jesus doing right now? Good, what else? He's pleading for us. Absolutely, he hasn't forgotten about his people. He is pleading in their behalf. So the 2300 days is a very important study. It reveals so much about the character of God. But if I come to the study and all I come across is, here's a timeline, here's the fulfillment, Have a nice day. Is that going to change their heart? No. Now it's just an informed sinner. They're in the same position as before. We have to see where is Christ, how is he the center. We're always asking for a decision, and then we seal that decision in prayer. After sealing the decision in prayer, we leave. Why? Leave them to contemplate it. Absolutely. Have you ever listened to a really good sermon before and it was really convicting and it really moved your heart? And right after the the pastor prays and and the music is done playing, the person next to you leans over and says, so how was work this week? Did you catch that ball game? And they start chatting with you about just calm and day things. What happens to your focus? It's shot. It's gone. You don't remember anything the pastor was talking about. That conviction has gone away. So we want to leave when people are still convicted, 
when they're still very much being impressed by the Holy Spirit, leave them to think and to contemplate on those matters. Does that make sense? Okay. Feel free to ask questions as we go along. Uh, We only have a few minutes to remaining, so I'm going to skip through some of these slides. But as I promised to you, if you want these notes, I can email them to you. So feel free to email me for that. Uh, Let me get my email again today, since I know we have some people here for the first time. My email is cmcsherry at amazingfacts.org. That is c-m-c-s-h-e-r-r-y at amazingfacts.org. I also have some business cards if you'd like that as well. But that is the general outline of a Bible study. Okay, so we saw that there were three parts to a Bible study. What was the first part? The first eight to ten minutes consists of social time. I'm just getting to know the person, spending time building that relationship. And then the next 30 to 45 minutes is study time. Here's the meat of the word. And then the remaining few moments we focus in on appeal and decision, sealing that decision in prayer, and then asking for that, um, then praying. Now, here's another pointer. Now, I know our time is limited, so we can't dive too much in how to make appeals. Uh, I would encourage you, listen to your pastor. How does he word it? How does he phrase it? I always, in my appeals, like to share like a little story or a little personal testimony related to that subject. So if I'm doing on salvation, you might share about the boy that was going to die, and then the father ran into the burning house, and he rescued that boy and saved him, but the father died in the process. And how Jesus is like that father who rescued us. It cost him so much, but he died because he could not enjoy heaven without us being there. Today, Jesus wants to dwell in our hearts. Today, Jesus wants to make our hearts his home. Would you like to join me in the decision to open up our hearts and to have Jesus come in? Okay, so you go from sharing this story and then you ease your way. Would you like to join me in this decision today? Now, if you notice, I said, would you like to join me in this decision as we make this decision? What if I was to say, you know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Today, would you like to come to Jesus and confess your sins? How would that make you feel? Not so good, right? You are in the hot seat. (laughs) I have just put her way down here. I'm too holy and perfect. I don't have any of those challenges, right? You're down there, you sinner. I never want to give that impression or that feeling. So it's so important to say we have learned today that Jesus promises if we confess, he will forgive. Would you like to join me in coming to God and and confessing our sins, knowing that he truly will cleanse us and give us that new heart? Good question. Oh, I wish I had more time. (laughs) Uh, I'm trying to give... (laughs) Okay. Can I just rattle something off in the next two minutes? Okay. I'm going to share briefly, and I remember I told you earlier about information overload, and we want to reveal truth gradually. Forget that for the next two minutes. Okay? I'm just going to rattle something off here. There are four levels of decision-making. When you are going to bring someone, or when you want to bring someone to make a decision for Jesus Christ, there are four levels before they're ready for that decision. The first level is information. Before someone can make a decision for Jesus Christ... 
They have to have adequate information. I can't ask someone to make a decision to keep the Sabbath holy if they know nothing about the Sabbath. What do they need to know about the Sabbath? It was at creation. What else do they need to know? It's in the commandments. What else? What? It's sanctified. It's holy. What day is it? The Sabbath is Sunday, right? <laughs> we have to show that it's Saturday. It's the day that Jesus kept. It's the day the apostles kept. It's the day that we'll be keeping in heaven. There is so much information that needs to be clear. It's, it's honoring God. It's honoring God as creator. Absolutely. So our first step in the four levels of decision-making is information. They have to have adequate information. If they don't, they won't be ready to make that decision. For instance, ladies, remember back to your, your first date with a man who is now your husband. And imagine you're on that first date just getting to know him. And you're there at the candlelit dinner, and it's just so beautiful and romantic. And, and he leans over to you with a sweet look in his face, and he says, Will you marry me? What would you have said? Please tell me you would have said no. Are you kidding me? I don't have enough information. I haven't done a thorough background check yet. We need information. Okay? So it is the same in our, when we're asking people to make a decision for Jesus Christ. If they don't have information, they are going to reject. No way. I am not ready for that. And the wall is going to come up and it's going to come apart. Second date, no way. Second Bible study, not happening. That wall goes up. So first we need to make sure people have enough information. Now how do we know they have enough information? Easy to say, but how do we know it? Ask questions. Is it clear to you from the Bible that the seventh day is the Sabbath? Do you see from the Bible that the seventh day is the day that Jesus worshiped on? Is it clear to you from the Bible that we will be keeping the Sabbath holy in heaven? I'm asking questions. Do you see? Is it clear to you? Now notice I did not say, do you feel like you should keep the Sabbath? Why don't I say that? It gives them an out, and it causes them to base their decisions off of what? Your feelings. Now, I'm a social worker, a counselor. I was trained to ask people, how do you feel? (laughs) Don't do that in a Bible study. Our decisions, our walk of faith is not on feelings. We walk by faith, not by sight. So every decision we're asking them to make, do you see from the word of God? Is it clear to you from God's word? Do you see in the life of Daniel that? Always direct them back to the word of God. Okay, the first level of decision-making is information. The second level, and our four levels of decision-making, conviction. They may have all the information in the world, but if they aren't convicted, it won't happen. Most people in the United States know smoking is not good for you. That's, that's common knowledge, right? It's written on the cigarette packet. They will kill you. Don't smoke these things. But people still smoke them. Why? They're not convicted. Well, it's never going to happen to me. I'll be fine. 
They're not convicted. And it's the same in our Bible studies. People can have all this great information, but if they're not convicted, they won't make a decision. Now, how do I bring someone to a point of conviction? What do I do? Thank you. <laughs> Let the Holy Spirit do his work. Pray. Pray. Continue to study with them. But let the Holy Spirit do his work. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. It is not my job. Have you ever tried to be the voice of the Holy Spirit before? How well does that work? It works wonderfully with our family and our spouses and everything, right? Not so much. It is the Holy Spirit that brings conviction. We can drive a wedge that will last years. Right. We don't want to do that. So second step is conviction. Third step, breezing through here. Third step is desire. They must have enough information, conviction, which the Holy Spirit does. Pray for that. And then next is desire. Now, desire. How can you help create within someone the desire to be baptized, the desire to keep the Sabbath? We use something called a mini-max principle. Mini-max principle. I want to minimize the negative and maximize the positive. Minimize the negative, maximize the positive. Let me give you an example of this. Let's say that I'm, I'm giving a Bible study to someone on baptism, and I want to encourage them to make that decision for Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to give you a very bad example first, so please don't say Amen. Okay? This is a bad example. What not to do? So today we have learned that we should be baptized and follow in the footsteps of Christ. Now I know when you get baptized, your friends will not understand what you're doing. They'll probably think you're crazy. I don't know what your family member is going to think. I mean, often family members will abandon you. But you need to be faithful to God. If God says to do it, you need to do it. All right, how many of you would sign up for that deal? No, thank you. I have just maximized all the most negative things that could possibly happen. And instead, now I'm going to do something different. I'm going to minimize the negative, and I'm going to maximize the positive. Johnny, I hear what you're saying. You're concerned about what your family and your friends might think when you make this decision for Jesus Christ. But I want to assure you, when you come out of that watery grave of baptism, you will never regret it. When you make that decision for Jesus Christ, it will be as though you hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is as though you can hear the angels saying how beautiful it will be to give your life to Christ, to wash the past away, and to experience that new life in Jesus Christ. Today, Johnny, would you like to make that decision for Jesus Christ? Is that a very different appeal? That's a very different appeal. I have just maximized all the spiritual blessings they'll receive in Jesus Christ. Yes, I hear your challenges. Yes, that's important to me. But here's what God promises through his word. Okay, minimize the negative, maximize the blessings. All right, what was our first step in the four levels? Information, good. Our second level was? Conviction, and whose job is that? Holy Spirit. Third level? Desire. What do, we do help, what do we do to help increase that desire? Minimax principle. And our last step? 
I haven't told you. <laughs> Our fourth step is now the appeal. It's now the decision. It is time for an action. So by the time we get to that fourth step, we know they're ready to make that decision. They've already had enough information, and we've constantly been checking with them to make sure that it's clear to them, that they see it in the Word of God. We know that they're convicted. We've seen the Holy Spirit work on them. They may have been asking us questions that showed us they were convicted, such as, if you're talking about the Sabbath, they may say, well, is there a Sabbath-keeping church around here that I can go to? Oh, good, okay. I see they're convicted. Then, of course, is desire. Helping increase the desire, show the blessings from Jesus, the spiritual blessings. And then lastly, now it's time to call for a a decision, an appeal. So you mentioned earlier about what if they say no. If we go through those four steps, then by the time we get to the appeal, we know that they're they're ready for that decision. 99% of the time. And the reason I say 99% of the time is, who is the greatest soul winner ever? Jesus. Jesus Christ. He always knew the right thing to say. He never made a mistake, right? He always knew how to reach the heart. But did anyone ever walk away from him? Yeah, absolutely. What about the rich young ruler? When he comes to Jesus and Jesus says, give all that you have, come follow me, and the man walks away. The Bible tells us that Jesus looking on him loved him. In other words, when that man walked away, the heart of God was broken. He wanted him to accept his calling, but he will never force. So don't get discouraged. If someone seems like they're not that strong spiritual interest and you're wondering, did I fail? Should I not do this anymore? Obviously, I can't be a missionary. Think back to Jesus. What would have happened if he had given up in that moment? Oh, forget this. I'm never going to be a good savior. (laughs) No, Christ didn't give up. We can't give up either. Okay, I'm going to flip through the next few slides, so don't be upset with me here. You can get them when I email them to you. Um, Smile, be enthusiastic as you're sharing the Bible study. Use their name frequently. It shows that you care about them, you remember them, it's important to you. Make sure that you smile. Some of us maybe have a tendency to be a little more morose. Smile drags a little bit. And we may not recognize it, but especially when we're giving a Bible study, we want to be excited, we want to be passionate. Smile. Show that we're loving and and we're excited about what we're sharing. We want to go question by question through the Bible study lesson to make sure that it makes sense to them uh, and that it is clear. Okay, the next few slides I'm going to just tell you about so I can condense it some. When I take a Bible study lesson, if I was to take the historicals of prophecy, the prophecies of hope, whatever Bible study lesson you enjoy, it is very impersonal. It's very theoretical and it's great, but I want it to really reach their heart. I want it to be important to them today, okay? So here's what I do in every Bible study that I have. Even though it's already prepared, I'm going to take that Bible study and I am going to make it personal. 
And then you can use that same Bible study for every single person you get Bible studies to. So don't be afraid. You don't have to rewrite it every time. But create that standard, that uh, sample that you will use. Here is what I put in the Bible study. First off, my introduction. Okay, what are you going to say that's going to captivate them? What is that commercial? How are you going to salt their oats? How are you going to get them excited about the study? First off, put your introduction. Next off, I start reading through the Bible study lessons. But somewhere in this section, I want to pick out three main points. When you look at a Bible study, it has 20 different questions to look up. By the end of the Bible study, how many questions are they going to remember? Two? They remember the general theme? Have you ever gone to a sermon before and the pastor says, today we're going to look at 20 points, and right away you clock out. There's no way I can remember 20 things. And it's the same with our Bible study friends. So every Bible study that I get, I look at it and I say, what are the three most important things? What are three things that I really want them to remember? I want them to take that home and apply it this week. All right, help me out on this really quickly. I know we only have a few minutes left together. Three most important things they should know on salvation. What are three important things they should know on salvation? It is a gift, not by works. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, God gives us his grace. It is a free gift, not by works. Is there anything else? It comes through Jesus Christ. Good, okay. The assurance of salvation in Christ. Yes, please. Good. Jesus would have come for them if, he, if they were the only one. So the value, the importance that he places on them. Okay, so we came up with more than three points, but that's good. Because each one of us are going to have different things that, wow, this really strikes me. This has made an impact in my life. And if it's made an impact in your life and you're passionate about it, that will come across in the Bible study. So three things from that lesson. What do they need to know? State of the dead. What do they need to know? The dead are sleeping. They're in the graves. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. One day they will rise again from the dead. Okay, whatever three points, but find three main points. I will underline them. I will highlight them. Whatever it takes, just really capitalize on those three main points. At the very end of your study, you want to have a little summary of what you covered. And at that point, I will just remind them what our three main points were. Today we learned that salvation is a free gift. All have sinned, but Jesus provided the solution. Okay, so I'm going to just remind them, what were our three main points? Okay, so first we have our introduction, and then we have three main points. Are you ready for one more step? Are you still with me? Okay. All right, our next step is, again, I want to make it interesting. Did Jesus use illustrations? What type of illustrations? Parables. He's talking about the oxen. He's talking about the farmer. He's talking about the vineyard. He's talking about the fig tree. And so then when they're walking about, going about their daily labor, and they see the fig tree, they're thinking back to a lesson that Christ taught. Also, the children could understand his teaching because he taught in stories and parables. And it's the same in our Bible study. 
In the Bible studies, you're going to see that the format is great, but it's a lot of theoretical knowledge. I want to illustrate it so they really understand it, so they grasp it and see the importance. So in every Bible study, I am going to add three illustrations. So I have how many main points? Three. How many illustrations? Three. And my illustrations are going to illustrate one of the main points or a difficult point in that study. Now, what's an illustration? The illustration could be your personal testimony. Maybe a miracle story of how God rescued you, of how God answered a prayer. It could be the experience of someone else who was rescued from a boat right before it sunk. It could be something related to the weather, something you read in the news, something you saw in your travels, something from nature. If you'd like to, Amazing Facts has little books called The Most Amazing Facts. (laughs) Grab it. Use them. When you listen to your pastor, if you hear a good illustration, write it down. Because I can pretty much guarantee the pastor didn't create that illustration. (laughs) They have heard it from three or four other pastors. They get reused. Use it yourself. Recycle them. So three illustrations is what I'm looking for. And then, of course, at the end, the very end of your Bible study, now's the time for the appeal and then the decision question. It's the very end, appeal, and then decision question. Is there a question? Okay. Any questions on that? I know I sped through it, but that is the main format that you want to add to your Bible study lesson. And again, that just makes it interesting. It makes it apply to them more personally, uh, and it's going to reach their heart. Any questions on that portion? Yes. Really good question. Am I creating a new study that I'm just typing up the old? What I will typically do is I will take that lesson and on the edges I'll write little notes like MP for main point and then I'll write out that main point. And then I will write illustration and maybe write three words from my illustration that'll just jog my memory. So when I get to that point I'll remember, oh yeah, cat chasing dog. And whatever it is, it just jogs your memory and you can share it. Okay. All right. What I'm going to do is I'm going to jump to the very end here, so please don't be concerned. Uh, You can get these notes if you would like. But for the sake of time, we're going to jump to the end here. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's why in my studies, when someone asks me, what do you think about this? I could quickly respond, oh, I think such and such. Why is that dangerous? This is my opinion. And what's going to happen if I start sharing my opinions? I lose credibility. What are they going to start doing? Yeah, they're going to question it. They're going to share their opinion. And now we're going to be arguing over opinions. I had a friend of mine by the name of Judy, and Judy uh, had recently made the decision to keep Sabbath holy, but she was still very new in that understanding. And one day during our Bible study, she said, you know, Carissa, I have someone that is going to do some work for me this Sabbath. They want to work in my yard, and I'm going to pay them to trim my trees, and is that okay? Am I allowed to do that? 
Now, what would have happened if I had said, no, Judy, that's bad. That's my opinion. Now, all of a sudden, we're fighting, right? Now we're arguing. Now she's resentful. So instead, I replied, well, Judy, what do you see Jesus calling you to do through his word? What do you see Jesus calling you to do through his word? So it's centered in Jesus. What is Jesus calling you to do? Through his word. Not my feeling, not my emotions, through his word. And it was so important. When I said that to Judy, she said, you're right, I'll make other arrangements. I didn't tell her not to do it. I didn't say anything. Except what is Jesus saying through his word? Okay, we're going to wrap up here uh, with two remaining quotes. Testimonies for the Church, volume 9, page 150. And it says, Our work has been marked out for us by the Heavenly Father. We are to take our Bibles and we are to go forth to warn the world. We are to be God's helping hands in saving souls, channels through which his love is day by day to flow to the perishing. God has given each of us a work. We are called to be conduits for his love to, throw, to flow through us today. There are so many people in this world, there are so many people within even our church that have a horrible misunderstanding of the character of God. Have you seen that? Remember not too long ago I was out Amazing Facts and I got a phone call. And the man on the other end of the line said that he had been going through our Bible study material and, and he understands that it makes sense, but I just don't feel like I can ever be good enough for God. Oh, I can answer that question. We can answer that question, right? We can't ever be good enough for God. It's not about us. We've all sinned, right? And I'm throwing off Bible text. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Revelation 3.20. I'm throwing them out at him. And after I shared them, do you know what he said? Well, I just don't feel like I can ever be good enough for God. Are you kidding me? All right, here they come again. Isaiah 63, 9, and I am rattling off the text. And then he says yet again, but I just don't feel like I can ever be good enough for God. Well, now what do I do? I told him all the verses. That was supposed to do the trick. And it was in that moment that I finally did the very thing I should have done at the beginning. I prayed. A little silent prayer. Lord, I've run out of ammo. I don't know what else to say. Help me know how to reach his heart. And in that moment, the Lord convicted me to say something that I had never said before. And I told this man, you know, sometimes we have a horrible picture of God because of the relationship that we have had with our own parents. And I had barely finished my statement before he said, yes, that's it. He began to tell me of a life of abuse that he suffered at the hands of his father and his stepmother. The abuse was so horrible, and and every night, you know, he would try and please his parents. He would try and clean that room perfectly. He would try and get those good grades, but he knew every night those beatings would come. No matter how hard he worked, no matter how hard he tried, he could never be good enough for his father. And then he took that understanding, he took that belief, and he put it on God. No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I work, I will never be good enough for God. 
You see, I could have aimed at his head all day long. I could have fired off those Bible verses. But it was not until by God's grace God revealed what was really going on in his heart that I understood the issue. And now I could share the true character of his father, the true character of his heavenly father, the one who wants to have a relationship with him. All around us, there are people that don't understand the character of God, and they are hurting, and they are crying out for people like us to reveal the true character of God. Who has God been to you? In closing, you may wonder, you may question whether you have a ministry, whether you can do anything for the Lord. Whatever your situation is, you may think that it may limit you. You can't possibly win a soul for Christ. But I want to share with you this promise from Christ's Object Lessons, page 327. And it tells us each has his place in the eternal plan of heaven. Each is to work in cooperation with Christ for the salvation of souls. Not more surely is the place prepared for us in the heavenly mansions than there is a special place designated on earth where we are to work for God. Amen? Not more surely is there a mansion in heaven for you than there is a work here on earth where God is placing you. And there is a work, and there is a mission, and there is a calling that God has made for you. Don't doubt it. Don't doubt it. God has a ministry for every one of us. God has souls for each one of us to reach. Are we praying for those divine appointments? Are we praying for those Bible studies? Those are the prayers that God delights to answer. In fall 2007, as we close with this story, fall 2007, we had a young man by the name of Cassano Luque apply for our four-month AFCO program. Cassano was about 27 years old, and a year prior, he had learned the full gospel, and he became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And now, at 27 years old, he's wanting to come through the AFCO training program. But when the instructors at that time received his application, he was denied. Because you see, Cass had just undergone his fourth brain surgery. He had reoccurring tumors. And the instructors told him, Cass, we would love to have you in the future. We see your passion for Christ and for ministry, but now is not the time. AFCO is intense. It's hard. We want to give your brain time. We want to give your body time to heal. And then come. We'd love to have you in the future. But you see, Cass knew that God wanted him at AFCO. He knew that he didn't have much time left on this earth, and he wanted to win souls for Christ for the little time that he had remaining. On orientation day, can you guess who was there? Cass. Cass showed up, and he was a dedicated student. One of those students that is always there on the front row and, and listening very attentively and excited and passionate. And, and Cass actually would come to class with a, with a walker, and he had a patch over one eye. This is a 27-year-old man. A walker and a patch over one eye because of the disabilities that were caused by his brain tumors. But he's excited. He's passionate. The instructors told me one day, it was pouring cats and dogs in the Sacramento area. And the students did not want to go out on outreach. 
They were not going to go out knocking on doors and doing community services when it's pouring rain. And so they're the grumblers of Israel. They're complaining to each other, we're not going to do this work. Who do those teachers think they are? When out of the corner of their eye, they saw Cass stand up, walker in hand, and he moved towards that front door. Cass, what are you doing? I'm going on outreach. Who's going to give me a ride? Cass was faithful. Cass was excited. Cass was worried, though, because, of course, his strength had not yet returned. He was not at his full strength. And, and he told, or his roommate, Michael Butler, later told me the stories that they would have late at night, the conversations they would have in their room. Cass would say, Brother, I don't know what, what's going to happen in the end of times. I'm not strong enough to make my way to the caves. I don't have the strength. What's going to happen? And he was scared. And Michael assured him, Brother, when that day comes, I will find you. And I will carry you to those caves. I will carry you to those caves. In fact, soon the motto of of that AFCO class became, in the caves or in the clouds. I will meet you again in the caves awaiting the second coming of Jesus Christ, or I will meet you in the clouds on that resurrection morn. In the caves or in the clouds, I will see you again. It wasn't long before those familiar migraines returned for Cass until he was in the back of the classroom grasping his head in pain, but he wanted to learn. He wanted to share his faith. He didn't want to give up. When he received the diagnosis, he already knew what it was going to be. He knew that this time it would be terminal. He was soon taken to the hospital, and the AFCO students that visited him later told me that Cass though he was in the hospital, refused to take medication because he said, I want my brain clear so that I can pray and I can witness. He was sharing the gospel with the nurses around him, and in fact, several of the nurses came to the students and said that they are now a Christian because of Cass's example, because of the example of a man that was in extreme pain that loved his Savior so much he could not stop talking about him. Two weeks before that AFCO graduation, Cass passed away. But you see, I believe his testimony lives on. The story of lives that he touched because of his love for Jesus Christ. Do we have that passion today? There are people that are crying out to God all around us. There are people that are searching for something greater. Today is our prayer, God, lead me to that divine appointment. God, open up that door so I can give a Bible study. Each of us has a mission. Each of us has a calling. Each of us has a purpose. May God open doors. May God guide. May God bless us to this end. And by his grace, if we don't meet here again, may we meet in the caves or in the clouds. Please stand with me as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, all glory and honor goes to your name, Father. We thank you so much for the things that you have taught us, but Father, now we come to you and we're pleading for more knowledge. May we continue to grow at your feet of grace, Lord. Father, we know that there are family members, there are neighbors, there are co-workers, there are classmates that you are calling us to reach, people that are open to your truth. And Father, I just pray, may you put that burden for souls in our hearts. 
May you open up doors and may we be willing to walk through them, Lord. Father, for each one right now that has the desire for a Bible study, I pray that we may not forget that desire. Lord, we know that when we ask great things of you, you love to answer them. And so, Father, now we're asking for it. May you give us those Bible studies. May you give us those divine appointments. But, Father, may you give us the words in your spirit is our prayer. And, Lord, if we don't meet again here on earth, by your grace, may we meet again in the caves or the clouds. Because truly, Lord, we are excited and we are earnestly awaiting your soon coming. For all of this, we thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Have a wonderful afternoon.